Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. This is Jeremy, and this week on Reasonable Doubts, we're going to do something a little bit different from our usual format. The reason why is recently, Reasonable Doubts' very own Dr. Professor Luke Galen gave a speech to CFI Michigan, a group that all three doubtcasters belong to, and Luke's topic was Profiles of the Godless. Results from the Non-Religious Identification Survey. Now, some longtime listeners might actually recall us mentioning this survey before, way back in Episode 8, when Luke was just beginning the survey. Well, the results are now in, and it represents the largest, most comprehensive survey of the non-religious to date. Luke shared the data from that survey with the folks at CFI Michigan, and, and we wanted to share that data with our podcast listeners as well. Now, this is important because there really isn't much survey data out there available on the non-religious. And the results from Luke's survey do provide some answers to some interesting questions, like how are non-religious individuals viewed by the broader community? What is it that really differentiates a religious person from a non-religious person in the same community? And the question of subgroups is an interesting one, too. We hear people in the skeptical community identifying themselves under different labels, atheist, agnostic, humanist. And the question is, is there any real difference? Are these real subpopulations within the overall movement or... Are they just different labels? Is, is there no real difference when you look closer? Now, sometimes the answers to these questions are exactly what you might expect, but there are some surprises in Luke's data, too. So I encourage people out there who want to know more about who are the non-believers. What does the survey data show? Hopefully, Luke's presentation will provide some answers. Now, I should mention that Luke's data is statistical in nature, and so this presentation is not ideally suited to an audio format. But we wanted to share it anyways because we thought it was important. For interested listeners, we've made Luke's charts and graphs and other figures available for you as a visual aid on doubtcast.org. So please be sure to check that out. And now, without wasting any more of your time, here's our very own Dr. Professor Luke Galen with... Profiles of the Godless, results from the Non-Religious Identification Survey. All right. Thanks for having me talk tonight. This is a subject that's uh, kind of near and dear to me. My topic uh, then here, as you can see, then is, is uh, primarily focused, rather than on religious people tonight, uh, I'm focused on the uh, non-religious or the irreligious as We'll see as we go on that sometimes labels make a big uh, difference there, so I just tried to find a, a one of the most inclusive ones, and that is uh, non-religious. Let me explain a little bit about what I'm going to do tonight. I'll speak a little bit about, first, uh, the previous work that's been done about, uh, uh, about non-religious individuals and groups. Uh, some of this information uh, has been around for a while, but I think that it's lacking in some respects. That's one of the reasons why I decided to do my study. Uh, then I'm going to talk about the first phase of my study, which was done right here uh, with our group, and then a comparison group. There's, uh, I was to compare our group with uh, other local, with uh, local congregations uh, to make some comparisons of a religious and a non-religious group. The last thing I'll do then is, is talk about the larger version of that survey where uh, we surveyed the entire CFI international mailing list with a, a similar uh, research instrument. Now, uh, what am I trying to assess? I guess some of my questions are fairly general. I wanted to get a feel for what non-religious people are like. That is, is there any common denominators uh, amongst, and then are there other differentiating factors between different types of non-religious people? Um, so one of the questions uh, that I'll address more in part two there is, what is it that differentiates religious individuals in a group from uh, non-religious individuals in a group? So the first thing I want to talk about, though, is 
what do people think non-religious people are like? That is, what does the religious majority, most people in this country are, uh, are religious, what is it that they think? Are there some general characteristics or stereotypes? And then I'll talk about do we, uh, are those accurate or not? So how are the non-religious perceived? I think many people probably have their own personal tales of this, but uh, it shouldn't come as a shock that as a group, non-religious people are not really accepted uh, in the mainstream United States. In fact, we're uh, as a minority, if you want to consider it that, as a group, we're one of the most uh, uh, reviled and, and, uh, communities out there. Uh, this is a survey that many of you probably already saw. Uh, this was uh, done. Uh, this is done by Gallup polling every 10 years or every 20 years or so for presidential data. And uh, because of the most recent election, I think that, that uh, this also bears some information on that. That uh, they ask people, "Are you willing to vote for an otherwise qualified presidential candidate who?" and then they fill in the category. Uh, they ask people about, I know you find that hard to see, but there's Catholic, Jew, African-American, atheist, and homosexuals. So you can see that uh, in the 50s, that there was a, 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 in terms of approval, there's a fairly broad spectrum disapproval of minority candidates, however you define that minority. Uh, you might, probably can't see that from the back, but Catholic is down here. Uh, and Jew and, and African-American are all fairly low. I put the atheist in white, though, to accentuate our snow-white souls, but also so it would stand out. You can see that all the groups have actually uh, increased in approval. That is, that uh, you, you can see that up in the uh, Catholic, Jew, African-American are up there in the 95% uh, range. There's only single digits that hold out that they wouldn't vote for an otherwise qualified Catholic, Jew, Whatever. But atheist now is rock bottom of these. Uh, only less than half of Americans say they would vote for an otherwise qualified atheist, even lower than homosexual. I'm aware of the way I'm phrasing that. Even lower than homosexual. That, the, uh, that uh, it's uh, of the groups of, that you can think of that are uh, categories, we're still rock bottom. So this is what I was talking about, that, that, uh, uh, that you have stereotypes. That, that I'll mention the specific ones later on. Here's another way that you can uh, assess that. These are also survey questions where they ask people, uh, this group does not at all agree with my vision of American society. And you know, guess who's number one? <laughs> Go team. Uh, above Muslims and all the rest of the categories. Or I would disapprove of my child wanted to marry a member of this group. So nobody wants to use part of their family either. Again, topping the list of the American mosaic. Yeah, so things aren't uh, looking too hot then for the non-religious, uh, although I want to mention one thing. When you uh, change the term atheist to simply non-religious or not religious, these statistics often uh, become less uh, negative. Uh, and so uh, the term atheist itself is laden, I think, with a, a certain negative quality that simply non-religious isn't. I don't know if it means that you're still convertible or what. Uh, um, there was another interesting study that just came out recently in a, in a sociology journal where they, uh, where they try to get out what is it about atheistic uh, individuals that engenders such a negative attitude. Uh, this was a study uh, called Moral Boundaries and Culture Membership in American Society. Uh, what they did was that they found that uh, there were certain predictors of who some people are more disapproving of non-religious people or atheists than others. Uh, and some of the predictors were that if the individual uh, perceiving was a conservative religious, I kind of think that's rather obvious, uh, they have more negative views, but also things like uh, education level. The less educated uh, Americans tend to have more negative views of the non-religious. Uh, females more than males, or rather uh, lower uh, approval than males. Uh, Non-white have lower uh, approval than white. And then people in the South and the Midwest, as opposed to the West and the Northeast. So those tend to be things that statistically predict uh, more negative attitudes. But in the interviews of the subjects, they came with some interesting stereotypes. And uh, again, maybe this might resonate with, with some of you there. One of them was a general category of viewing non-religious or atheists as threatening with the lack of morals, typically from a lower level of society, like, for example, criminals. So here's one example where the person said, the prisons are probably filled with people who don't have any kind of spiritual or religious core. So I don't have to worry about a conservative Christian committing a crime against me. So uh, the prisons are chock full, apparently, of, of the godless um, people there. Um, the other stereotype, though, uh, was curiously sort of the opposite in some ways, and that is the most successful members of society. That is, uh, a materialist and elitist atheist threatening from above, which seems rather paradoxical, but apparently uh, uh, they, they are filling, you know, like, with people sort of like... Uh, uh, George Soros or uh, some uh, millionaires like that, billionaires. Uh, so the interview, one person said, a real I'm an atheist attitude among people with major money. I don't care who you are and what you worship. So 
Both those groups, the commonality, even though they seem to occupy opposite positions on the, on the food chain of society, uh, are that it's a other, a cultural other category. This is what the author of the article, Edgel, said. To be an atheist in such an environment is not to be one more religious minority among many in a strongly pluralist society. Rather, Americans construct the atheist as a symbolic representation of one who rejects the basis for moral solidarity and cultural membership in American society altogether. So uh, they're viewed both from the top and from below as, as opting out of the community. So uh, one of the things I wanted to, uh, to look at, though, uh, is is that really true? I'll, I'll get to the, the data in a second, but is it really true that uh, people that are non-religious feel that they have opted out uh, of the community there? So uh, the question, I guess, that this brings up in, in, in at least my mind is, do the non-religious really fit those stereotypes? Now, some previous work has been done on this, as I mentioned, some of this is fairly recent. Actually, I know some of you have already read uh, this book by Altmeyer and Hunsberger called Atheists, a, Ground a Groundbreaking Study of America's Nonbelievers. It's kind of a quick read, and it's, uh, it leans towards the statistical. But essentially what Altmeyer and Hunsberger did was they went into people in atheist organizations. Uh, the, so they had several groups around the country. Uh, one of them was based in the Bay Area in San Francisco. They had a couple other small groups from uh, the south, uh, rural areas, Alabama and Idaho, and then he also gathered a Canadian sample uh, up where he does, Altemeyer is based out of Canada. Uh, parents of college students, and the parents were uh, non-religious. So he uh, surveyed them uh, about their general demographic characteristics and such. Um, and here were some of the findings that uh, what Altemeyer found was that uh, people who were in these non-religious group members, I should emphasize that too, these are not just stray people there, they were members of groups, tended to be um, male they tended to be uh, older than the average in the population, uh, higher educated, and politically leftist. Now, it's probably some of those might not be uh, surprising to people. Um, he also asked them about what kind of environment did you grow up in? Did you have a home religious emphasis when you were growing up? Uh, none at all, moderate, strong. Um, and uh, again, as uh, you would expect, uh, many of those grew up in non-religious households, but rather it wasn't too common to have no religion whatsoever. The norm in his sample was that people had a little bit of religion. Somewhere in the book he said something like, you know, if you want your kid to be atheist, it's not necessary to uh, stress non-religion in the house, just don't stress religion. Uh, but he did find a, a significant minority who, were, uh, grew, who grew up in religious households. There was proportionally more of those in the rural groups, interestingly enough, in Alabama and Idaho, that is, that the many more members were, I guess you could say, recovering religious uh, people. That's probably why they sought out that group. He also found that uh, in, in uh, questionnaires and interviews with the people that uh, many of these people developed their doubts about religion uh, alone or, or with very little input from others, and it also tended to be a longer intellectual process uh, as opposed to a religious conversions, which tend to be uh, fairly quick in many cases, that uh, the non-religious conversion, if you could call it that, a deconversion, tended to be a kind of a slugging it out intellectually. Many of the people uh, reported that they relied upon books, thinking about things, uh, philosophy and education and such. Uh, and many people actually uh, did so despite conflicts with their loved ones. That many of the people that, that in his uh, sample reported that they almost felt kind of torn because they had lost people along the way. Uh, some of the stories were kind of sad in the interviews. But uh, he, he gave some, uh, also some standardized measures of traits. These aren't necessarily personality traits, but they're uh, ways of worldviews and, and such. Uh, some notable findings were that people that were uh, non-religious tend to be very low in authoritarian traits. That is, they rejected uh, appeals to authority and, uh, and, and following the crowd sort of thing, which, again, is not particularly surprising. Uh, one of the more controversial things he found that uh, got onto the blogosphere was that he, f he found that uh, he gave a measure of dogmatism, which in his definition was um, an unwillingness to uh, give up one's views. And so some of the items on this would be like, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to ever change my mind, or if people would look at the things I've seen, they would think like me. He actually found that the atheists were more dogmatic in that sense than the agnostics, and this angered some of the athe atheists. Uh, because uh, the atheist said, well, we have changed our views. Many of us used to be religious and now we're not. Or, well, we have thought about our views. And yes, it is. we did say we're not likely to change, but that's not necessarily dogmatism. So you could probably see some of the responses if you look this up on the Internet. There were uh, uh, firing blogs back and forth about whether that was truly an uh, accurate way to describe that atheist as being dogmatic. So uh, those were some of his findings. He also had a, a, another survey that's fairly common uh, that people have seen. Uh, I know many of you have read Michael Shermer's work. One of, he's the editor of Skeptic Magazine, but he had a book out uh, called How We Believe. 
in 2000, and he devoted part of that book to a survey that Skeptic Magazine did of its readership. Now, not all the readers of Skeptic are non-religious, but a substantial chunk are. And he, when he compared them with a general public, he found uh, uh, certain predictors of a lack of religiousness. And again, some of these were, uh, these sh shouldn't be shocking, uh, those people who are non-religious tended to have a higher education. They tended to be older as well. Uh, age and religiosity actually follows kind of a curve pattern. And he, interestingly, he found that there was a, a higher rate of parental conflict among the non-religious, which, uh, going back to what I said before about some of the family relationships here, shouldn't be too surprising, but it was sort of an interaction. If you came from a religious family and you had conflicts within that family uh, uh, with parents, you tended to be less religious. So one hypothesis would be one, one way to rebel against a family you don't get along with if they're religious is to become non-religious. He also found uh, other predictors, an interest in science predicted non-religion, um, having an earlier, uh, the earlier one tended to doubt, the less religious one tended to be later as an adult. Um, again, liberal politics. And uh, another one that's kind of thought-provoking, that's family birth order. Uh, some of you might have heard of uh, some hypothesis of birth order in that younger children tend to be more uh, non-conventional or rebellious than the older children. Uh, he actually confirmed that younger children were rebellious specifically in that they were non-religious. Older children, uh, children tended to be more religious uh, as opposed to the firstborns. And, and then um, he found certain personality variables that were predictive of this. And I'm actually going to hold off on this one because it's something that I wanted to look at as well, and I'll explain it more later on. Um, and then the, the third of these studies that was related to this is, is, was very similar. It's done by the same research team, actually, Altamaya and Hunsberger. But they studied specifically people who were converts, both conversions to, from religion, uh, to and from religion. Uh, and uh, he, when he looked at what he called apostates, people who had rejected their religion, he again found similar characteristics to what we talked about before, often slugging it out with their families and such. But one of the quotes actually struck me as very... Uh, kind of interesting, he, he said, uh, we think the apostates rejected their religion primarily because their religious training made them care so much about the truth and having integrity. It's not that their upbringing failed. Indeed, it worked so well that ultimately the family religions failed the test it helped to establish. That is, in the interviews with these people, he found that actually they didn't perceive it as turning their back on many of the values. In fact, many of them cited those values, uh, a search for the truth, uh, uh, following you know, the truth wherever it leads. Uh, those tended to be their, their, uh, their driving values. And in fact, that led, as, the, as that says, that many of them uh, said that the religious values of adherence to the truth were what them made, made them give up religion. So <clears throat> that brings us up to then uh, the, the first part of my study. There were questions that I had that weren't really answered by some of these previous studies. Um, some of this was the, the group focus. Uh, we're not, uh, some of these were, uh, as I mentioned, Altemeyer's study was a study of an atheist group, but what are some of the other characteristics relative to the group, such as things like friend, social networks uh, or things like organized activities? Does a non-religious group function in similar ways to a church, or are they just two different things, apples and oranges there? And particularly, what differentiates those people then who gave up religious upbringings to become non-religious, as opposed to people who had always uh, been non-religious? Uh, it's, uh, it's very interesting to me to think about people who grew up within the same type of religious household, some of whom stay religious and some who, uh, and some who don't. What differentiates those two types of people? The other thing I was going to look at was subtypes within the non-religious community. Are there really genuine differences between people who label or, or define themselves differently, although their commonality might be life without God or without religion, uh, there are different ways to be that way, atheist, agnostic, humanistic, and such. I want to look at some of the specific subtypes there. So um, some of the surveys that I'm going to talk about look at things like social characteristics and personality characteristics uh, that, that mark that. So the first survey, I, as I mentioned, I wanted to talk about was the survey we did here. I guess you could think of us as taking it for a, uh, the survey instrument for a spin or a pilot study. Uh, this was what we call the CFI Michigan study, where it was people like you. Uh, some of you filled out my survey, which I appreciate. Um, so this is really, uh, I wanted to get a comparison group, though, of people who also were in our community who are religious to compare to the non-religious. So people that live in Grand Rapids that are both churched and unchurched was uh, what I was looking at here. So the way I did this was uh, that I uh, had Jeff help me with uh, sending emails out to the mailing list here, and we put it up onto a website called SurveyMonkey where you could log in 
and, uh, and have all your data right there. So these were, this was everybody on the CFI email list, not just people who come to the meetings all the time. And that's an important distinction. It wasn't just uh, the people that you see here. It was everybody uh, that we have a contact with. So the caveat here was that um, these are not just non-believers in general. These are non-believers who are somehow attached to the CFI group who have expressed an interest in the group. So I concede right away that some of the data might not be relevant to lone non-religious individuals who don't associate with any type of group, whether it's attending meetings or ever uh, you know, asking for information or materials there. These are active people. So I had them uh, fill out a survey regarding specifically some of the aspects of their metaphysics, their beliefs and such. Uh, what type of, of believer or non-believer were they? Uh, and then I mentioned social characteristics, so like uh, their friendship networks, how many people they socialize with and such, how they perceive their social support. So perceived social support means uh, whether you feel that you get support. It's not just a number of contacts. Are, are there people who value me, who uh, rely on me? Do I have friends and confidants? So uh, what are, uh, what's some of the data then? Uh, we had two churches then that uh, as a comparison group. Now these to some extent, were selected because of simply uh, expediency. Uh, I, I, I wanted to get people who were not, uh, say, for example, at the opposite end of the spectrum of being very fundamentalist, and they probably wouldn't have cooperated anyway, but um, I was lucky enough to get very uh, good responses from two churches. One was Kentwood Community Church, which is, I believe, uh, has affiliations with Wesleyan uh, uh, theology, and then Fountain Street Church, which has a history of, non, or is non-denominational, but it has a history of, uh, of kind of Unitarian uh, Universalist connections there. Uh, many people actually here go to Fountain Street Services because of the, uh, uh, the, like the intellectual community there. So one thing I was simply looking at was how do these two groups of people, CFI Michigan and then the other two churches, how do they differ? Uh, if you look at just kind of a general comparison, I had about equal numbers from both, almost exactly equal, which was good. I had uh, the, the survey data that you're going to see is actually based on slightly more than 300 people there. One thing that stood out right away demographically was the gender split. Uh, the CFI Michigan respondents were about two-thirds male, and it was the inverse for the churches, which were two-thirds female. So that's one thing to keep in mind when you look at this data, and uh, I'll mention like, some of the analysis that tried to correct for the fact that there was a gender disparity, but yes, in fact, uh, there's a lot more proportional males here than in church groups. The age was relatively uh, close there. The average age was in the 40s. And similarly with income, if you look overall, the SES, or socioeconomic status, was pretty close. The one exception I thought was interesting, which is why I put it in a bar graph form, was at the extreme low end of the scale. Uh, I think there was a slight statistical edge where the churches had higher income than us, but you could see that's primarily due to the fact that, I don't know if you could see those red bars there, the red ones are the churches, and then the blue ones are the uh, CFI, is down here at the impoverished end of the spectrum. Um, my sense with that was that it was students, that we probably have more people in their 20s that are starving uh, student types uh, at the low end of the scale. And in fact, when I controlled for age, when I, in other words, when I selected only the people above, like 25 or 30, which who are you know, more likely to be employed, that difference diminished. So probably what we're seeing here with income is that we have students in our group uh, that are in college more often. Also with demographics, one interesting difference was marriage. If you can look at the uh, comparison between the CFI group and the uh, churches group, one thing that stands out right away is that there's more, we're about half of the people in my sample were married, about two-thirds, almost three-quarters of the church people were married. Uh, the divorce rate's about the same, with that, a slight more divorced in the church group there, actually. But then the, uh, uh, where we make up the differences in the single, never married, and the cohabiting. Uh, there's, uh, I could only find 1% of the churches that were cohabiting. And then the, uh, the never-married singles, there's twice as many in our group as theirs. Now, one, some of the sociological theories about uh, church-going is that they are family factories to keep people together to marry off single people. In fact, this is particularly true of men. I couldn't hardly find any single unmarried men in the churches. Either uh, they don't go and wait until they uh, marry uh, uh, a woman and then they take drag them to church or what, but, the, but some of, uh, there's some debate within the community as to what churches are for, and one of the theories is actually they're to marry off single males who would otherwise be you know, pillaging the countryside or whatnot. So. <laughs> and so you can see here then that that is true. We have people who are uh, single, never married, uh, and cohabiting, um, much more cohabiting in our group than theirs. Although interesting, again, the, the divorce rate is something that stands out too because divorce is often something that religions concern themselves with. You can see here that that didn't really differ that much. Uh, related to the marriage thing is children at home. This was another big difference, and I've been looking at this one even still trying to mess with that statistic, whether it's an age thing or a marriage thing, but 
uh, as you would imagine, kids often are more often uh, present within a marriage, and we had two-thirds of the church people had children under 18 at home, as opposed to a little more than a third for the CFI people. There's a lot of work out there, though, showing that, um, that people that are religious have larger families, and in fact, some of the lowest uh, birth rates in demographic groups are seculars. This is true, many of you are aware, in Europe, for example, where the birth rates in the secular countries are, are cratering. Uh, they can't even get enough people to support the, the population if it wasn't for immigration. So it is true uh, that, that secular couples tend to have fewer kids. Now, the big difference here, I think, the big story, and it shouldn't be surprising because the other surveys found this too, and that's education. But you can see this very easily here. I, I want to show people that, um, that if you, again, compare the blue and the red bars there, the, where the CFI members really pull away from the church pack, and that is in the higher end of the education, graduate studies, for example, um, uh, 14% of churches, church members had a master's or a PhD. Uh, over a third of our group had a master's. That's twice as many there. It's, it's a, really a huge difference. If you think about the proportion in the United States population that has a master's or a PhD, uh, a third of our members in the survey did. And that's uh, what you typically find, as I mentioned in other surveys, is that education is one of the key distinguishing components of non-religious from religious people. Now, looking at their metaphysics and their epistemology and such, uh, I asked, uh, one of the questions we put was on like a Likert-type scale of how certain are you that God exists, from ranging from absolutely certain that he does not, you know, or she or it, uh, absolutely certain that God does exist, and then anywhere in the middle of not sure to I'm kind of somewhat sure. Again, in, in contrast to the stereotype, these, the churches, which I was surprised at because of Fountain Street Church's reputation, that you actually could only, I could only find people in the single digits who were church members who did not say absolutely sure that God exists. In fact, the CFI spread was much more wide. You could see that the blue is kind of spread across there, all across from absolutely certain that God does not exist, mostly certain. Some of the agnostic types who don't want to take a position are here in the middle. They not, are not really sure because that's, there's no evidence either way, that kind of thing. And actually, some of the CFI members were, uh, there's some small percentages there, but they were uh, believers. So one thing you could see from this, then, is that uh, there is a, a wider spread of belief in the CFI group than in the churches. When I asked them to make a label for themselves, now, I actually put this into two questions, because many people can choose more than one label for their beliefs. I could be an agnostic and an atheist or and a humanist. So I had them uh, choose... Uh, as many as they applied, agnostic, humanist, spiritual, all these labels that you see at the bottom, uh, other theists, humanists. We had even had things like pantheists. or uh, uh, that, didn't, that didn't have that many responses, so I didn't include that, the pantheists. But, and then I asked, if you had to choose one, choose one which, would the one, which would be the label that best applies to you? And this is what you see here. If you self-labeled choosing one, what would that be? Now, you can see, again, uh, no surprise that the red bars for the churches tended to cluster over onto the theist side of things, religious, spiritual, theist, roughly divided evenly amongst those three. And at the other end, atheist, agnostic, humanist for the CFI members. Although, again, the CFI has a little bit more spread. We have some spirituals, some theists, and some others. They're actually, the, the most creative responses were the other category for the CFI members. And many of them used up the entire blank typing in, you know, uh, some of them were actually funny with the spaghetti monster and whatnot, but I, I didn't include those. The other thing that uh, was interesting was the childhood religious experience. What type of household did you grow up in? Now, you can see, as I mentioned before, that there are, there's a fairly widespread. Very few people grew up in a household that discouraged or had no religion whatsoever. And, as you would imagine, people in churches tended to have more childhood religion. But you can see the overlap is, uh, there's some substantial overlap there. So, for example, among the CFI members, over, uh, let's see, a third of them, had strong or very strong childhood religion. Um, it's just that the churches had even more. Now, there's a couple things I, I'm not showing here, but the, I just wanted to point out. One thing that was interesting to me was the, uh, the, when I ran the ages of people, their current age, as a function of their childhood religion, what I found was interesting in that those people who said, I grew up in a mild, moderate religion household, actually tended to be older. That is, people who were born, and I looked at the age cohort, those people who were born and grew up formative years in the 60s and 70s, tended to say more often my religion at home was mild or moderate. And then the people who had the no religion whatsoever and the very strong religion were younger and older, which indicates to me that maybe there was some sort of cohort effect. That is, people who grew up during a specific historical period of the 60s might have been to have mild, kind of lukewarm religion. The other thing that I noticed was, as I mentioned before, I, I asked people about whether their beliefs had ever caused static between themselves and their families. And I did find that amongst the... CFI members who had a strong or very strong 
religious childhood. That is, those people that had a highly religious childhood report that the item said something like, did you have your beliefs ever caused conflict with your friends and family? And that was uh, quite significant, indicating that there are a lot of people here in the group that have a high, had a highly religious childhood that, that have had difficulty with their, uh, with their immediate family and friends. One of the other things I wanted to look at was a comparison in general of things like happiness, satisfaction with life, because as I mentioned before, one of the stereotypes of the non-religious was that they are some kind of doer, uh, life is, is awful, there's no meaning sort of thing. And uh, this, one of the main points of the study was I wanted to see whether the data actually bear that out, and if not, to, re to debunk that. So one of the measures that's used in psychology to measure this is a very simple satisfaction of life scale. So you, uh, you rate, you know, I'm, things have went well with my life, I wouldn't do it over again, that sort of thing. And people fall, as you would imagine, on a bell curve. Some people say life is just a, a heck of a ride, other people are, eh, life isn't too good. So well, this measure has been substantiated, I guess is what I'm trying to say, in other populations, forming kind of a bell curve on the one end from prison inmates. They're not doing so well. Uh, people have psychiatric problems, inpatient. They're at one end of the life satisfaction scale. And at the other end, people who are, I think the highest group I could find was, for some reason, older Canadian adults. I don't know if that's, uh, you know, you have to be older and Canadian, but maybe just being Canadian is enough to, I'm really satisfied, eh? They, they have, um... Now, where do we fall? The CFI group fell uh, in the uh, upper average range there. That You can see here that actually the church group has a slight edge, and I think that was barely statistically significant because we had so many people, but of no meaningful difference. Uh, the CFI members were just as satisfied with the churches, so I guess uh, that's also, I found other groups that compared to that. College students are out of 24, nuns are out of 24. You're as happy as nuns, uh, maybe even more so. If you were Meryl Streep in, in the doubt, you're very unhappy. I, I didn't have data from... So life satisfaction tends to be uh, comparable to church people uh, and fairly well within the normal range on the, on the high end and, and not really significantly different. So there's no evidence, in other words, that people in general uh, that are non-religious ha have some doom and gloom attitude uh, more so than religious people. I also was looking at social networks, as I mentioned before, social lives. These would include things like uh, the number of people in one social network, just the sheer number of contacts, close confidants, as I mentioned, uh, the perception of social support. And in fact, churches statistically have a slight edge on this. Uh, that is, that more people in the churches slightly more said that they have more uh, pure number of contacts, but they particularly pulled away in the social support thing there. Um, so one of the standard sociological questions is confidants. How many people have you discussed important matters with recently? So I, I even made a bar graph of this to show you kind of, uh, yes, statistically there was a difference with church people having the edge, but you can see that there's a lot of overlap again uh, in the number of people. This is the number of confidants. There are some people out there with no confidants. I think some people who might remember recently, there's a, a, a past few years a book called Bowling Alone that said that many Americans have nobody that they can talk to. There are some people out there, and um, there is slightly more of them in CFI group than in the churches, but once you get into the normal range of things, there's really not a huge difference in the number of close individuals there. I'm actually going to do more analysis with this as to breaking that down. Uh, so, uh, the, so I guess one way to describe this was there was a statistical uh, difference in that churches tended to have particularly higher than the CFI groups a perceived social support. Not the number of people, but just thinking there are a lot of people out there who uh, value me and who uh, you know, I can turn to and things like that. So one of the things I want to look at further with this is uh, in the future is does church in some ways provide that social contact? Is it because they're church members and they have a ready social network that's different than this type of group which is not based as much on that kind of a model of a soul? Do they provide a way of, or of socializing that we cannot? Now, I had mentioned this before about Shermer's findings that differentiated non-religious from religious people, and that was a personality variable. So I'm going to just take a minute here to digress to talk about how personality is measured. If you did this survey, uh, if you remember filling this out, there's a lot of personality questions that people actually complained about in the response blank. I, I hear your complaints. That was the measure of personality here. Uh, I use the, the most common model that's commonly used model in psychology. is called the Big Five. The Big Five uh, are five independent dimensions that measure uh, ways in which personality can differ, again, on like a bell curve sort of way. So one of the ones that people are most familiar with is extroversion versus introversion. Some people uh, are sociable at the high end of extroversion. They like company. Other people are shy and reserved. So this is an example of one of the big five dimensions uh, there, and that is, is that many people prefer socialization. Many people don't. 
that dimension didn't differentiate religious and non-religious people. Similarly, another dimension that's uh, fairly well-known is uh, neuroticism, although now people call it negative affect. They wanted to keep an N-word, but that didn't sound like Freud. Uh, neuroticism simply means the tendency to experience negative mood states. Uh, neuroticism, for example, is people high on neuroticism get upset easily about things, depressed and anxious, and people low on neuroticism, it's not that they're happy, but they are kind of flatliners. You know, If lightning struck their house or if they won the lottery, they just wouldn't care. You know, oh, okay. Um, that's another dimension uh, that, that wasn't a strong differentiator between the religious and the non-religious, but that's the second of the big five dimensions. Another one is called conscientiousness. This is the dimension that uh, people uh, differentiate on in regards to their kind of preparedness and their uh, togetherness. People that are high conscientious are very disciplined and goal-oriented. People that are low on conscientiousness are very kind of lax, uh, relaxed and spontaneous. The fourth of the fifth dimensions uh, is called agreeableness. People uh, differentiate on how uh, they perceive other people as being friendly and the world is basically a trusting place. So high agreeableness people tend to be uh, very uh, uh, cooperative and wanting to please other people. Low agreeableness people are uh, the opposite. They tend to be a little bit more suspicious and distrustful of people, maybe even antagonistic. They're, they're not as interested, in other words, in maintaining social uh, propriety. The biggest dimension, though, and this is the, the last of the five, I say for last for a reason, and that is this is what Shermer also found in his survey in the Skeptic magazines, that openness to experience. This is a personality dimension that measures, as the uh, name implies, measures a certain intellectual aspects of somebody being open. People who are high on openness to experience are uh, curious, imaginative. They report that they are very uh, like to think about abstract ideas, uh, unconventional ideas they prefer. The term xenophilia is a preference for different things. They like you know, to try different things. Low on openness to experience is the opposite. People are conventional. Uh, they don't like to try particularly new things. You know, Vanilla is fine with me. I don't need 32 flavors. Um, they, t they are down-to-earth conservative. Now, you can see probably where this is going in regards to uh, the topic here. Uh, what differentiates our group from other groups? And the biggest personality difference was this. Openness to experience characterized the non-religious people. So, uh, uh, and also this makes sense because this does correlate with other psychological traits that you would think of as going along with non-religious. Uh, a, a disdain for authoritarian arguments and dogma, uh, dogmatism, fundamentalism, all those things tend to negatively relate to openness. So, uh, that, by the way, openness uh, tended to predict the non-religious people, whether by belief, like uh, absolutely sure that God does not exist, as well as by category, atheist, humanist, and whatnot. So what I tried to do statistically was uh, all these things, one probably might imagine is education level would correlate with something like this. People that are more educated also tend to be higher in openness. So which is it? What is it that is the, some of the core elements of non-religious people controlling for all the other things? So when I rank ordered this, uh, the, what really came out and what surprised me was the strength of this openness to experience thing. That is, even when statistically I adjusted for the factors that I talked about before, more males, fewer children at home, um, the, uh, having a higher education, the personality variable still shone through as being strongly predictive. And so the biggest thing that differentiated people that were in this group as opposed to the churches or people that believed in no God as opposed to God was openness to experience. And uh, the lower agreeableness dimension, which as I mentioned just a second ago, uh, agreeableness tends to, uh, people that are highly agreeable tend to emphasize social contacts and not upsetting other people. People that are lower in agreeableness don't. Now you can, uh, you can, uh, Imagine that that might be in some ways related to being a member of a group that is uh, a non-mainstream group. Uh, that is, you could say, no, I don't believe that. That would be in some ways related to a lower agreeableness there. Um, and actually, the, the same variables predicted even when I looked at people who just grew up in a religious household. I think I told you one of the things that I really wanted to look at uh, most was what differentiates people who grew up in a strongly religious household, some of whom become religious and some who don't. Uh, who become non-religious. Uh, so really the comparison here is in a strongly religious home, what I, I want to, to sort out, why are the people, some people grow up as an adult to maintain that level, and other people grow up to then uh, be apostates, to reject that religion. The same variables did. Again, openness to experience was the top predicted variable. This is interesting to me because of, uh, from the standpoint of that people can grow up within the same milieu and then want to maintain that milieu. That is, you know, again, if you like our, my description of openness, people that are lower on openness to experience, tradition's fine by me. Why rock the boat? Uh, I don't need a new experience. 
What probably differentiates us, and again, above and beyond the education level, is that, that uh, openness to a new way of thinking, to not to reject uh, something that doesn't uh, make sense. Uh, that goes along with the higher education. So that was actually one of the things that surprised me the most was how strong that was. The other aspect that I wanted to look at with our sample before I, I mentioned the larger sample, and that was the aspect of coming here to these group meetings. As I mentioned, it's probably different than something like church uh, in some aspects of this. Uh, if you see that uh, uh, attendance levels, many more people, this is the uh, proportion, uh, the number of people that go on, uh, 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 have never attended a meeting, uh, weekly meetings, all the way uh, in between, several times a month, a couple times a year. And again, the churches are in red. You can see much more people in church consider that a weekly thing. So that shouldn't be any surprise. They go to church uh, on Sundays more often, whereas our uh, members are all across the board. There are some people out there in our mail list who don't ever come to a meeting or rarely, and there are some people who are, uh, attend, dare I say, religiously uh, to many events. Uh, there are more than one event even a week here. They, they go to movie nights or whatever, uh, three beer discussions. And so we have a, a lot wider spread of people participating in events. It's not just a weekly thing. So it's, it's, it's a slam dunk to say that churches have greater weekly attendance and regular attendance there. Why don't CFI members attend meetings? Uh, some of them were, uh, I actually, actually asked people verbally to state why they didn't. I tried to categorize them because some of them went on and on about the specific things they didn't like. But, uh, so th these were the most common responses. And uh, again, this is, shouldn't be any surprise here. Many people just simply don't have time. Uh, so a third of people that don't attend said they, the reason they don't attend is they don't have time. Uh, some of them aren't actually near here. They're kind of strewn about West Michigan and such. Many of them are not joiners. They want to be, uh, have intellectual companionship, but not necessarily always joined up. Uh, this is the herding cats hypothesis, by the way, that uh, they don't want to be constrained within a group. Uh, that's one problem, I guess, with a non-religious group that churches don't have to contend with, and that is this kind of group solidarity here uh, with a bunch of nonconformists. Um, and then many people are not interested in the topics. I can see that's not the case tonight, uh, or, or in activism. Now, the other survey, I'm running out of time here. I'll, I'll, the other survey I wanted to talk about was the big one, and this is the one that was one of the largest data sets I've ever dealt with, the mailing list from CFI International. Um, so the rationale, again, for this project was to extend this to as many people as possible. One thing, though, that's different is it wasn't a religious and non-religious comparison. These are only the non-religious people. In fact, we had referrals. We got people saying, can I forward this to my local non-religious group? So this is, you know... Uh, the extreme density of the godless, I guess you could say. Now, the other rationale for this particular survey is a lot of the other surveys you always read about, uh, there's not that many people who are religious as a proportion in the population, and it's always lumped together. Uh, that is, atheist, agnostic, non-believer, they're always in the 5-10% range. I think Tom Flynn talked about what the exact numbers were here, and he said there's actually a lot more than what you think. But many surveys, because that's still on the low end, just lump them together. So one of the things I want to look at here is, is, is there a difference in shades of non-religion, uh, uh, in that somebody who says, I have no religious preference versus I'm an atheist, that sort of thing. Are there distinct categories? This is an example of a general public survey. You can see the problem, as I just mentioned. Two-thirds, uh, three-quarters of people almost say that they believe and have no doubts about it, but that still leaves a lot of people spread across the spectrum here. There's a couple percent of atheists, a couple percent of agnostic. Some people are in black, black like their souls. You see there's, they're not sure. Um, sometimes I believe in God. There's all kinds of variety other than the traditional, um, non, uh, other than the traditional religious. So what I want to look at is what differentiates these types of people. Then, what about people who say I'm spiritual but not religious? That kind of thing. So what I did was this was the from the again the CFI International emailing list. So it was explicitly billed as just for non-religious people there. Uh, one feature I wanted to add, though, here was, uh, so I haven't done a lot with this, so I won't mention this much tonight, but I want to also ask about their other group participations, like their uh, philanthropy, whether they're engaged in organizations, donations. I don't have any of that data ready for you uh, tonight, but I wanted to ask uh, also their, their group affiliation. So I gave one uh, measure here that asked, how wedded are you to whatever it is that your identity is? If it's an agnostic or a spiritual atheist, how like-minded do you need your friends to be, for example? Or how, how much do you identify yourself with that lack of belief? So here's a similar uh, format in that uh, I, I'll actually repeat the statistics from CFI Michigan on the, on the left there, the 300 members to the 5,000 members from the CFI International group. Uh, one thing is that uh, you're going to see here, the pattern is that the CFI International survey group is actually like us, but more, uh, on everything. 
this is more male, it's, it's a little bit older, it's more wealthy, it's more educated. Here you can see that a third of them earn more than $100,000 a year. This was last year, by the way, so it's probably lower now, but um, that, or unemployed. But uh, look at the education level on this. Three-quarters of them had at least a college degree, and 41% were graduate educated. I've never, ever seen a group uh, of a large chunk of people like that who are as educated. In fact, some of them let me know that in their responses, too, that, you know, who are you? So, uh, and it, what's also different here is that it was the location. This was not a local thing. It was spread out pretty evenly across the different demographic groups and internationally. We do have CFI international members, primarily from the English-speaking countries and uh, the United Kingdom. Um, Canada, Australia, you can see that that's fairly well spread out. So that's who this is. They're like, uh, they're like us, except even more CFIE. Now here's one of the things that's always talked about if you've read like Free Inquiry or any uh, party of more than two uh, uh, non-religious people is, what do we call ourselves? Uh, I think we should be atheists. No, we're agnostics. You know, I'm going to schism. I'll be the new agnostic there. Uh, when I, had, I gave them the same questions then, is how, uh, how many labels do apply to you? Just check all that apply. I'm spiritual, I'm agnostic, I'm also humanist. So here I drew the circles overlapping in that uh, you could see they don't add up to 100%. This is just the sheer number of people who, amongst other things, included that label. Spiritual, about 9% of people said that they are spiritual and something else. Uh, 28 agnostic, 63 humanist, and then the biggest was 77% said atheist. But again, these are, that's, that's people amongst other things. What was interesting to me to do was then see when I then asked them, but just pick one. Yes, you're all those things, but if you had to narrow it to one, what would it be? Is to look at the contrast between the two. So here you can see that the groups are smaller. Only 2% then said, I'm spiritual. 10% agnostic, 24% humanist, 57% atheist. Some of those, if you're a math major, you've already done all the calculations. Some of those have decreased more than others from the when they could apply all the labels to them. So, for example, just take the top one. 9% of people in the non-religious sample said that, yes, I am spiritual amongst other things, too, but only 2% use that label solely, and that was a fairly high proportional reduction. People tend to use the term spiritual, but more so with other things. There's very few people that define themselves solely as uh, spiritual. And agnostic was kind of like that as well. Agnostic tends to be, I guess you could say, a, a catch-all. That is, if you look at that, a quarter of people said they're agnostic amongst a bunch of other labels, but only one out of ten said that they were only agnostic. The rest of those uh, people who included agnostic, amongst other things, they spread, scattered to other categories. They became humanists, they became atheists when asked to just choose one. So again, this is why I said agnostic tends to be something that people include with other things, but when the rubber meets the road, many of those people revert to another label. Humanist is something that uh, uh, is, again, one of the more popular choices, but then it decreases. You can see that 63%, two-thirds of people said that they're humanist, amongst other things, but only a quarter said just humanist. So uh, uh, half of those humanists, where did they go? They went, to, they went to atheists. That is, many people are including humanists with their atheism and saying, I'm an atheist humanist, I'm a humanist atheist. But when you look at them, uh, and then when you also, I'm, I'm looking specifically at their beliefs there, they say, oh, Yes, I'm an atheist, when essentially when push comes to shove. And then the atheist group retained the highest percentage of people. So another way to put this would be three-quarters of the people who included atheists with a bunch of other things, three-quarters of them stayed and said, I am I'm an atheist, that's my primary defining label. So some things that we can say about the labeling wards is that this has some implications in that, as I mentioned, spiritual and humanist appear to be categories that are soften, softening agents. People say, yeah, I don't believe in God, but I'm spiritual. Uh, I'm also a humanist. It appears that they say that, uh, uh, but when, again, when push comes to shove, they drop that. They actually share the same metaphysics with the people who say uh, that they're non-religious as an atheist. But when you include the word A-word, uh, that appears to be a bridge-burning element. When you say you're atheist amongst other things, there's a higher likelihood that you, are, that you will say that you're just an atheist when asked to define that. The other thing that I found that was interesting about that was a generational split. There was an age effect. Humanists, people who include humanists and people who include spiritualists are actually older. I don't mean spiritualists, by the way, like a seance. Uh, I'm spiritual, not religious, is what I mean. They're older, on average five years older than the people who are the, I guess you could say the young Turks of the atheists who include that word. They tend to be proportionally younger. Now, I don't know if this is kind of a generational Kurtz thing where, where there's a, where's a popularity and then now the younger people are more kind of hitchinized or dockinized. They're, they're, but the, the point is that there appears to be a more people who, who are younger predominantly, uh, who, more and more people who say that they are atheist.
Uh, the other thing was a gender split. Many more women say that they are spiritual but not religious as opposed to men. Um, and so the, the spirituals and the agnostics, I guess you could say, when asked to, about defining themselves, they appear to, to not define themselves in regards to their non-belief. I think I mentioned that survey, the forum I, I mentioned before, where you said how closely tied are you to your non-beliefs? How, how do, you define, do you define yourself according to the lack of belief? People who include spiritual and, and agnostic really don't think of themselves as primarily uh, defined as by their lack of belief. That appears to be more of a characteristic with atheists there. The thing I asked about earlier on the survey, remember I showed how the churches and the uh, CFI groups uh, were on, had uh, life, similar life satisfaction and their emotional stability by, measured by neuroticism. One of the, the reason I wanted to look at that with this group was a lot of the theories out there in the literature suggest that religion is good for you emotionally and it's a linear relationship. So that uh, some of you might remember when uh, David Myers, who's a professor at Hope College, talked here a couple years ago. I think this is when we were at the other group. But he mentioned religion as many surveys find that religion provides for better mental health. And so he listed all the things that people who have a low religious beliefs tend to be unhappy and not satisfied. And so therefore the implication was that somehow being a doubter or a fence sitter is bad for your mental health. So I've kind of illustrated that through a crude diagram there, that, that uh, people will have poor psychological adjustment according to this theory, and that if they would just simply increase their belief, they'd be happier uh, in a linear fashion. And the problem with that, if you remember from other surveys, is that often non-religious people are lumped together. That is, people who are weak believers, I guess you could say, that don't have strong religious beliefs, are also always lumped together in convenience in many surveys with people who are stone cold, I don't have any belief, and I'm sure about that. So the problem with many of the studies that are out there, that seems to indicate a linear model. More religion is good for you because they uh, lump together the weakly, uh, weak religious with the completely non-religious. As opposed to what I have the capacity to do with this study is as I have enough non-religious to actually look at the full range. People who are fence-sitters as well as the strongly non-religious. looks like a smiley face, I know, but that would be a curve model that maybe uh, a little bit of religion is bad for your mental health, but a lot of... Certainty, either way, is good for you. So the curvilinear hypothesis means higher levels of commitment either way are associated with good mental health. And in fact, why I'm going on about this is because that's what I found. If you look at things like the uh, neuroticism or emotional stability dimension as a function of certainty of beliefs, the strongly certain people on either end, I'm certain that God exists, I'm certain that he does not, are the highest uh, most uh, highly emotionally stable. And it's the people that are not sure that are the lowest. Same with life satisfaction. It forms a curve, uh, with the fence-sitters being the least satisfied. One of the things I, that I'm going to try to do with this, then, is, is, is make a strong push in the literature when I publish this for uh, the inclusion of the entire range of beliefs to show that it's not simply more religion is better. In fact, in many uh, cases, you'll see that strongly religious people in, uh, have uh, similarities with strongly non-religious people in many domains. A sense of a certainty, for example, a, a moral uh, compass. Uh, some of you might remember the psychology experiments with the, uh, the Milgram study, the obedience study where the, somebody tells you to shock somebody. Actually, the people who gave the least shock that, that is disobeyed and said, I'm not going to do this anymore, were the strongly religious and the strongly non-religious. There's a lot of findings like that that when they divide it up that way, they look similar. Now, one thing I want to stress, though, is I'm not, I can't do cause and effect with this data. I don't know if religious uncertainty leads to distress. It could just as well be that distress leads to religious uncertainty. If you're an unhappy person, you might drop your beliefs or some combination of underlying cause to, to both of those. This is the classic correlational conundrum. I can't say which one it is with just this data. It might be a combination of things. Oh, and by the way, I went back to our group. Uh, the data found the same thing. When I looked at certainty of no God uh, amongst people and the church people pooled together certainty God, it also formed a curve pattern there. Essentially, this is the last thing I'm going to show you. This is what, uh, when I looked at labeling, these are w the four most common labels were spirituals, although there still wasn't that many, 2% of them, uh, but agnostics, atheists, and humanists, when they could just pick one label, this is who they are, and this is everything I was just talking about. When you look at things that characterize those people who label such, you see something like this. The first uh, category of, of certainty in God is almost uh, axiomatic. That is that people who are atheists are mostly certain or very certain that God doesn't exist. Agnostics are somewhat certain. Humanists are also mostly certain. But then spirituals are not sure, so they tend to be more, again, of the uh, hedging their bets. The, as I mentioned before, the gender split is reflected there, that spirituals tend to be proportionally more female, and the other groups are proportionally more male. In fact, very three-quarters male amongst the other groups. 
The age thing was something I mentioned before as well. This is here you can see it too. The average age of your spiritual and your humanist is in the 50s, lower 50s, whereas the average age of the agnostics and atheists was about five uh, years younger than that. So this is what I mentioned about the, um, the young people tend to be more strongly identified as atheist and agnostic. The, uh, the, the personality and the happiness dimensions I mentioned before too. Here you can see again in contrast to the other labels, uh, the, the people who are spirituals actually tend to be less satisfied with life uh, and then the other ones fought it out for being moderately satisfied. And then those personality dimensions of being agreeable, uh, caring what other people think and trying to please people. The spirituals were highest in that. And then the, ag the, the agnostics and atheists were the lowest in that. So this is what I mentioned before. There's a possibility that maybe atheists in some ways are trading off their certainty that God doesn't exist with getting along with others in some ways. They, maybe they value the, the, the argument about saying, yes, this is what I believe more so than getting along with other people. So just some final remarks here. Where do we go from here? Uh, I mentioned before, uh, is there truth to some of these views, the stereotypes about the non-religious? And, and so if there is truth, then we have to find out why are they true and why are they, uh, which ones are not true. The education level or the openness to experience, the interest in intellectual stimulation, often that's criticized from the religious community as being elitists. We saw this a lot in the political climate too, that if you are interested in ideas and things like that, you're one of those elitists and things. We saw before that that was one of the basis for the stereotypes of the non-religious is that you're, you, know, you don't share commonality. You can't just sit down and have a beer with people without talking about you know, Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative. Um, there might, in fact, be some truth to that in that, that, that uh, the non-religious people tend to be higher uh, on, on education there. So, in fact, that stereotype is somewhat true if you consider to be highly educated to be more elite, although I don't say necessarily that's a bad thing. The other thing I mentioned too is that it has family implications. Maybe one of the reasons that religious people think that non-religious people are in some ways opting out of society is that uh, non-religious people tend to be educated and value career things, for example. They don't tend to have as much uh, big families. They tend to get married later because they're focused on education. Uh, so in some sense, again, that stereotype might be true and people uh, might be eyeing non-religious people suspiciously because why do, you know, my church sets me up with somebody. We get married right away, right out of college and things like that. That is less common amongst the non-religious because they're pursuing uh, their things. Uh, you look at Europe, for example, as I mentioned about the, the secular birth rate crash. Now, the, the personality things, this is one of the things that, uh, again, might be somewhat true if you think about it. The cranky loner hypothesis is what I call it. Just that, is, that somebody is not really just cares more about the truth and about ideas rather than getting along and singing kumbaya. To some extent, we saw that that is true personality-wise in that many non-religious people probably do value argumentation, acquiescing to evidence rather than not saying upsetting things at the cocktail party. So what we saw there with the personality is that they do tend to be somewhat lower in agreeableness, and they, uh, especially with the atheists who are certain of their beliefs. So I guess one thing that we might want to ponder is, is that a trade-off that's kind of inevitable? I didn't see any uh, evidence that the, the, of the angry atheist hypothesis. In fact, you might want to hypothesize that, the, about, think about the reason that they might have difficulty with their community is because of the rejection, not because they've separated themselves from the communities. So I guess one way that I thought to put this uh, the other day was, is there really a, there might be a trade-off between following one's intellectual standards to the logical uh, conclusions there uh, versus having uh, total harmony with what other people think. Uh, atheists appear to be less willing then to say, oh, whatever you think is, is correct, I don't want to upset you, and, or something like that. And then there are differences. Our group probably won't ever be like a church. We don't have a divine sanction for meetings. You're not going to be zapped with lightning if you don't come to a talk. Uh, and that uh, it's probably less encouraging of things that are very churchy-like, you know, uh, that everybody has to, to get along. Uh, that we do like more of the push and pull of the intellectual ideas and coming here to be exposed to that. And some people never will be attending regularly uh, as members. We might want to think about what events we can change that would make those people feel more welcome. A lot of the people actually put on their survey have more events where children and families are involved, where we can go do fun things instead of arguing about, you know, Emmanuel Kant, which isn't fun for a teenager. Um, I'm going to actually get a look more at some of this stuff like community involvement. As I mentioned, I have some data that I didn't show tonight on things like uh, societal participation. I, I didn't show you some of the analysis that I'm doing right now about charity and volunteering and such. What I hope to do is show that because this group tends to to include people that are successful intellectual members of the community, that in actuality they do foster a lot of community with things like charity, volunteer work, and participation.
To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.